I'll do a brief uh, sound check. How is the sound in the back? It's good? Okay. Each, each evening during our retreat, uh, one of us will give a talk, which will give a little more of a larger perspective and orientation, also in some ways uh, guide us for the next day. And the invitation is to take the evening talk as a form of practice can stay present, stay in one's body. Um, they'll be rec- they are being recorded, so they'll be available to listen to in terms of getting details or um, quotations and so forth. But I think to listen for what really is resonating or speaking to you you know, as well as something that might come up where there might be a question. So to listen in a, in an embodied way, being present. <clears throat>
I want to explore the nature of our meta practice and particularly how meta practice works, the kinds of transformations that occur when we stay with the metta practice, when we stay with it in a retreat and over time. When we look at it, it's actually a very simple, and I would say radical approach. It's very simple. We're training to manifest kindness moment by moment. That's it. End of talk. Longer walking meditation than expected. But it's, it's radical because it's a training to manifest and develop kindness and learn more and more both in our formal practice and then in our daily lives to live with the intention of kindness, of goodwill. We have different words that can really express what we mean by, by metta. And the word metta itself has in its etymology the word for friend. So it's kind of a warm, expansive uh, friendliness. But my sense is that in the cultures of 2,600 years ago, friend had a little more power than it does now. Where I was saying in one of my groups, uh, they did not have uh, Facebook friends 2,600 years ago. And so I think it had power and energy and being a, a friendship, being a deep state. And some of us know that, but it's not always seen that way in the society. My uh, colleague, Anushka Fernandopula, likes to translate metta or speak about metta, I should say, as unstoppable friendliness. And that's probably closer to the meaning. Loving kindness is a bit of a strange word. I don't use it myself so much. And even here, I'll use the word metta, the, the original word. Uh, I like kindness, though. Kindness is good. So I think it's really powerful that in this world with all the challenges, with all the things that are happening, we can have as one of the main guides in our lives to develop and manifest metta in the world, in our lives. And to have that simple, profound uh, vocation, as it were. Again, from the Metta Sutta, this is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace, wishing in gladness and in safety, may all beings be at ease, 
whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none. So with a boundless heart, should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world. That's our direction, that's our aspiration. And one of the aspects of meta practice that I love is that it really can be brought quite well into many aspects of daily life, into meetings, into driving. I have a number of people I work with who do metta. They get in the car, it's metta time, <laughs> right? Or uh, several people I work with work, I think I mentioned, work in healthcare and can really, in a way, access metta or people work in the helping professions in different ways. Um, one of the people I worked with, uh, I was talking with maybe uh, a month or two ago, and he reported really bringing in the metta practice in a strong way with a newborn, with a, um, a son, uh, now about six or seven months old. And I thought I'd read a story which is about metta in action with a six-month-old uh, six son. After a long, hard day, I finish the chores and finally slip into the soft, chill bedsheets, resting my head on a fluffy pillow. Sleep comes quickly for this tired body, a deep sleep. An hour later, <laughs> I'm awakened by a loud noise. Eyes open reluctantly along with a deep sigh as I rise to investigate. Moments later, the noise stops and I'm back in bed asleep. Another hour later, the same noise, the same response, yet with a hint of frustration, a grunt in place of the sigh. Another hour later, another wake up. After yet another investigation, I return to bed. However, I do not fall back to sleep this time. The frustration of being repeatedly woken up for several days in a row now has become too great. I lie in bed wired and tired for another few hours with unrelenting thoughts. Does anyone know this one? <laughs> okay. Why does the noise keep happening? Why can't I just sleep through the night? I'm exhausted and need rest. The source of this loud noise is getting very annoying. After a few nights of regularly interrupted sleep, increasing frustration and worse and worse sleep, I'm struck with a realization my task is to see nights as practice. Wow. <laughs> you see, the source of the noise is my innocent, beautiful baby boy, Aiden, crying. Aiden is six months old and going through a sleep regression that many babies his age experience. Now when I slip into bed, I send an intention for the night. I know Aiden will cry soon and wake me up. I vow to be as present as possible with Aiden so I can understand his unmet needs. I vow to hold Aiden and myself in compassion and love. I vow not to not express my frustration towards Aiden because he wants sleep too. 
is innocent and unconditioned and so beautiful. And because I love him more than I can explain, during each wake up, I connect with my intention. I tenderly hold Aiden in my arms, gently rocking him back to sleep, his head resting on my shoulder, his tears felt against my bare skin. Aiden deserves patience, presence, love, and compassion. With practice in the middle of the night, over and over again, I have developed the capacity to give Aiden what he deserves. And in the process, I have further purified my own heart to be more compassionate and towards not just Aiden and myself, but towards all beings. After just a few nights of this practice, Aiden is actually sleeping better. He's waking up less frequently and falling asleep more easily, and I'm sleeping better too. So this path of practice, moment by moment, inviting metta is ancient. And versions of this are found in multiple traditions. Uh, Mark Twain says, kindness is the language the blind can see and the deaf can hear. In the Jewish tradition from the Talmud, it said the highest form of wisdom is kindness. And from one of the uh, mystical texts from the Jewish mystical tradition called the Zohar, which means uh, radiance or splendor, it says the world shall be built on love. This is actually uh, quoting one of the Psalms. The world should be built on love. And in the text it says, by this the world endures. And from the uh, Christian, Christian Bible, maybe familiar to, to many, love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it does not dishonor others. It keeps no record of wrongs. It rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. And from the uh, Islamic tradition, uh, from the, the prophet Muhammad, shall, shall I not tell you of something which if you do it, you will love one another Spread the greetings of salam or peace among yourselves. Somewhat like the metaphrases. Spread the greetings among yourselves. And then from Rumi. Love is the water of life. Drink it down with heart and soul. Then maybe one, one more reading from uh, Dr. Martin Luther King. Junior, we have this retreat. As many of you know, it, it, I think it always 
includes his birthday, January 15th, which is Sunday. And this is from Dr. King. This call for a worldwide fellowship that lifts neighborly concern beyond one's tribe, race, class, and nation is in reality a call for an all-embracing and unconditional love for all. This oft-misunderstood concept has now become an absolute necessity for their survival of humanity. That was in the 1960s he was saying that. When I speak of love, I am not speaking of some sentimental and weak response. I am speaking of that force which all of the great religions have seen as the supreme unifying principle of life. That's what we're, we're practicing. We're inviting that unifying principle of life to be manifest in you know, and we're, you know, we're doing it in our own ways and, you know, just in this very simple way of repeating phrases that tend to be evocative and almost like call up or wake up our own kindness, care, love, whatever language we use. And again, so crucial for our world. Uh, I found, uh, some of you may know the song, uh, Democracy is Coming to the USA. Anyone know that one from Leonard Cohen? He's a Canadian, by the way, <laughs> or was a Canadian. <laughs> says, democracy is coming to the USA. I, I could sing it, right? But I think I'll, I'll, I'll read it more like a poem. Democracy is coming to the USA, to the shores of need, past the reefs of greed, through the squalls of hate. The heart has got to open in a fundamental way. Democracy is coming to the USA. Okay. <laughs> Could be a metaphrase. <laughs> yeah. And so we have this very simple practice where we intend using phrases to open the heart. You know, first we become more present. And for some of us, I'll come back to this, we're still really becoming more present. How many people have had a uh, sort of unresolved material from before the retreat present a fair amount today. Okay, so look around, right? That's a, that's a majority of us. So that's natural and normal. One of the jobs of a meditation teacher, and we get deep training for this, is basically to say whatever your experience falls within the parameters of being normal. That's our work. That's the main work. The talks are secondary. But we give talks. Okay. So we need to be present, and we do that in various ways. Uh, repeating the phrases themselves is a kind of concentration practice. So that keeps us bringing us back. We notice we're off the phrases, we come back. And then we, we have the phrases are really inclining us towards the kind heart. We choose the phrases that tend, as best we can tell, to evoke our warmth or kindness. 
And it's very important that we are really, uh, our practice is about inclining towards kindness or metta. It's not about demanding that I have love or that I have kindness. It's about inclining. It's a little bit more like knocking on the door, you know, or it's like we intend, we do our best with phrases that are as skillful as we um, can imagine. We say the phrases with uh, sincerity, and then we let whatever happens happen. You know, and in a way, what happens is not our business. We want to be aware of what comes up. We might have beautiful phrases, say the phrases, and some, you know, irritation comes up. So really crucial. We're not trying to manufacture metta or demand that metta be here. Somehow produce it. Like I sometimes like to say metta is an intention practice not a production practice. We're inclining in that direction. I think T.S. Eliot has a line in a poem where he says, ours is in the trying, the rest is not our business. That's really the spirit of meditation practice. We do our best and then see what happens, see what comes up and then respond skillfully to, to what comes up. Later in the retreat, we'll be exploring some of the relatives of metta. You know, collectively, we sometimes talk about the heart practices. And they're this family. Many of us know there's a a traditional sense. We we actually were singing the chant or doing the chant. Metta, karuna, mudita, upeka. Those are the four Brahma-vihara. Those are the four qualities of the awakened heart that we'll go into more depth on as the retreat proceeds. And they're really the different manifestations of kindness or of the awakened heart. And metta is sort of the foundational uh, aspect of the awakened heart. It's there more or less as our, our basic approach. And then when that awakened heart meets difficulty or pain, it naturally becomes compassion. It's the same heart, not a different heart, but it, it turns to compassion. When it encounters beauty or someone else's happiness or even our own happiness, it becomes uh, mudita or sometimes translated as sympathetic or appreciative joy, joy in the joy of others. And then the fourth is uh, a heartfelt quality of equanimity, which brings in especially the wisdom dimension, but is also a heart quality that can be with the kind heart and balanced no matter what's, what's happening and have that quality of balance in relationship to oneself and others. One still stays with kindness and with balance um, no matter what's happening. And then there are three contemporary nominees for an expanded Brahma-vihara. They are forgiveness and gratitude and empathy. And I think we'll be bringing those in uh, some as well.
the reason that metta practice, as we stay with it, opens us up to our own kindness and, and, and care. In the tradition, the understanding is that our deeper nature is connected with metta. So in a sense, we're not, again, not producing anything, but we're uncovering our basic nature. We don't need to manufacture metta because when we find our minds less busy and when we've worked through some of what blocks the, the kindness, the metta is there. It's said that in the tradition from 2,600 years ago, that there is a quality of what's called a a brightly shining aspect of mind and heart, which is linked with metta, which is there for everyone, even people who do quite unskillful things. It's there. It just gets covered over. Often the metaphor is used of the sun, which gets covered by the clouds. And so, in a way, we practice both accessing metta and inviting the metta, but also getting to know the clouds. Well, and we may have particularly experienced those clouds today on the first day. And so, for the rest of the talk, I want to look at some of what makes metta practice challenging, and then how we work with those challenges. And I'll name, I think I'll name uh, four different challenges. Uh, the first is one I mentioned earlier. It's, it's the obvious one of distraction that we are preoccupied by other things, unresolved things from the past, or that we're anticipating in relation to the future. Just the habitual mind going in all directions, past and future, association, just just qualities of the habitual mind. And of course, we we live, uh, most of us, in a society which we could say is quite distracted. And even we know that the electronic devices that many of us use are designed to be addictive, right? People know those studies, right? We know that. And so we have that, uh, um, we have that as part of just being in a, in a busy society with, um, enormous amounts of information and so forth. We know that. So distraction is the first area that I'll I'll come back to. A second one is the um, kind of uneven energy that manifests in two ways, especially. One is sleepiness. How many people had some sleepiness today? Well, look around. Yeah. And so... It's very natural the first day 
to, to be sleepy over time. And how many people had sleepiness, even though you don't think you needed more sleep? Yeah, interesting, right? How many people had sleepiness knowing that you needed a little more sleep? <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, right? So I'll come back to that. And then the other aspect of that is too much energy and restlessness, kind of a little bit, being a little bit hyper. How many people experience that some today? Yeah. So fewer, but some. So how many people experience both sleepiness and restlessness? Interesting. You can say, could you two get together and meet in the middle? <laughs> right, but it doesn't work like that. Uh, and then the third challenge is that we often find it difficult to access the kind heart. And that can be for all sorts of reasons, sometimes because of our conditioning or past experiences, sometimes, uh, you know, maybe pain that we carry from, from the past, uh, even sometimes uh, trauma, uh, that it can be hard sometimes to access the heart or um, sometimes we have to, at the same time we're doing that, also work through some things. And that's, that's connected really with the the fourth challenge, these are, these are in a way interrelated. The fourth challenge is that we have at times uh, difficult states that arise, states that are hard to be, be with. It could be anger or, or grief or reactivity. A very common one is being judgmental of ourselves or of others. How many people had some experiences of being judgmental towards self or others? Yeah, so look around again. So one of the really benefits of a retreat or working sometimes in a group is we can see that the challenges that we have are shared. It's not necessarily about me. It's not my problem, but they're really very much shared in common. So in, particularly in relation to the first two challenges, I'll talk about how we can develop more stability of mind and more concentration. And I'll, I'll bring some of that into the instructions also tomorrow. And that, that's a way really of working with both the distraction as well as the sleepiness and restlessness. And then in relation to the third challenge, uh, I would say we, we learn better to lead with the wise heart. And this is a training, you know, that, that can take time. But the meta practice is a beautiful what, um, response when we have challenges in accessing the heart. Um, and then it's, again, related to the, the fourth challenge is that we, we work with the difficulties or the sometimes painful experiences that come up. We, we work with what uh, Gulu this morning uh, spoke about, a word we sometimes use, uh, that we engage in a process of something like purification. We work with our residual material, and it comes up uh, more in meta-retreats meta than in uh, mindfulness retreats, actually. 
You know, and sometimes people come in the morning. I've had the experience people come in the morning and tell me, last night I had a dream and I was an axe murderer. Is this my basic nature? You say, so this is where the, you know, all the training comes in and say, that's normal. <laughs> and, you know, and very, very common. I won't ask how many people had ex-murderer dreams last night, but, and I, I'm not, I better stop talking about that. I'm not making suggestions for tonight. But, but um, if there are, you know, those kind of dreams, uh, it's, it's actually a good sign. It means things are, are moving inside. That's how I'd interpret it anyway. And so as we work with these challenges, we actually engage in that process of purification. And there's a kind of beautiful integration of our minds and hearts and bodies that get increasingly uh, brought together, connected. We go more into our depths. You know, a lot of what is difficult is, or like those clouds preventing the sun from shining, or they, they are in the way from us touching our depths. And, you know, retreats, um, as many of us know from past retreats, you know, um, contrary to sometimes to what we put in the advertising, there can be challenging experiences on retreats. How many know from past retreats that there have been, you know, challenging, sometimes intense experiences, right? But you're all back, right? <laughs> Right, and I, I sometimes think uh, that if we had truth in our advertising, maybe for Spirit Rock or for other retreat centers, we would say, come. Yes, you'll develop some calm and wisdom. You'll also come face to face with your five main neuroses. Please come. <laughs> Enjoy, you know, learn from it. Don't be, don't be discouraged you'll have more difficult experiences than you thought you were going to have on a retreat. <laughs> okay. But, um, Gulu, you're, you're joining the guiding teachers group, right? Maybe you can bring that into the advertising. We'll see. But I'm skeptical. But, but it actually is the truth, isn't it? Right? That we, we encounter some challenging things. And it's actually beautiful because it's a chance to work through stuff in a way that... Um, can really have movement and really be beautiful. So concentration is a word that we use as a translation of samadhi. It's not the greatest translation because it often implies this kind of effort. And what we're looking for with the repetition of the phrases is continual saying of the phrases, but also doing so in an easeful and relaxed manner. And that's the essence of samadhi. And I, I like to use the word samadhi rather than concentration because concentration often does have those over-efforting over uh, connotations. And so we look for that kind of uh, balanced uh, effort, we might say, where we have, where we have ease and Samadhi is really about, in the, in the etymology of the word, it's really about uh, 
coming to more composure. The, the actual words mean placing together, you know, and, and bringing things, you know, bringing things together, bringing our awareness, our what's in our awareness, our minds and our bodies, having some unity, composure, stabilization, and so forth. And this really increases the quality of, or the access to the heart. There, there's a line that I heard some time ago from the Russian Orthodox tradition from the 19th century. Uh, I think a monk named uh, uh, Brother Theophane, he said, dispersal of attention diminishes warmth. Interesting. Dispersal of attention diminishes warmth. And so we look for that balance. We look for that, that ease, like, uh, like I think uh, Gula was saying this morning. We can have that sense of having, uh, when we notice our minds uh, away from the metaphrases, our attention away from it, we can come back. Uh, without being hard on ourselves and have that sense, even of, we're talking in one of the groups, even of a sense of appreciation. Oh, I'm mindful. I came back from being a little bit distracted. Let me just, with ease, go back into the metaphrases. And so one of the ways to work with this uh, is to work with the intention at the beginning of a session to balance ease and persistence and to kind of ask oneself, where am I stronger? For some of us, we'll be pretty good with the persistence, but a little bit tight. And then we would invite more ease. And some of us are pretty good with the ease, but not so good with the persistence. I won't ask for a show of hands with these. But, and then, so to kind of know how many people have a sense of where you fit with that balance. Right? And so you can see and then have the intention, may I, may I have more ease? And you can really invite that. And you can know maybe the persistence is, is just there by how your practice is. But inviting that balance and, you know, the kind of, if we call it a uh, further balance of those two core qualities is one of the, uh, one of the keys to developing uh, more samadhi. Another another help for that is really relaxing one's body. So, how many of you have found maybe that after yoga, the attention was a little stronger? Anyone notice that? Yeah. So you could actually do before a sitting, do five minutes, you know, eight minutes of stretching, or maybe some of you do qigong. That will actually help. Helping the body to settle helps the mind to settle. So it can be very valuable to do some of that before, before a sitting. So the second challenge that it sometimes is hard to access the, the kind heart. And some of this is related to uh, conditioning. You know, that I know for myself, I was talking about this in a group a little bit in the group earlier today, that for myself, I think I was, you know, as a teenager and so forth, I think I was a sensitive boy and, you know, 
I know I sometimes I even uh, cried during movies, which I think was unusual for boys in my circles. And but I uh, I don't think I was really in touch with my emotions. Part of the conditioning, right? And if someone would ask me, how are you feeling? I would tell them what I was thinking. Yeah. And anyone relate to that conditioning? Yeah. And so, so for me, uh, I didn't really have access to my heart. In fact, when I first was practicing metta, I think I did a week retreat. It was actually before we had metta retreats. Uh, it was near near early part of my practice. I, I did a week uh, without the greatest instruction, and it didn't seem to be working. And uh, I said, okay, well, maybe metas for other people. And here I am. <laughs> right? And But it was also one thing I'll mention about staying with the metta. It's also very mysterious because I remember during that retreat, I didn't think not much was happening. I didn't feel much warmth. I was staying with it. And then one morning over breakfast, and I wasn't even doing the phrases, and I heard myself say, I love you. I said, whoa. <laughs> right? And I've heard the Sharon Salzberg tells a similar story of doing meta practice. It didn't seem to be going anywhere. I guess it was, again, in the kind of the early days. And she was called out of her retreat to attend to, I think there was a, conflict in the community or something like this. And she was in a hurry and she knocked over a vase and she started immediately saying, you klutz. And then she heard herself saying, you may be a klutz, but I love you. She said, whoa, very similar to my experience. So just to know that metta is mysterious, you know, that again, uh, ours is in the trying, the rest is not our business, that we can be doing metta, and it doesn't seem to be going anywhere. And we stay with it 20 minutes later, something opens up. How many people know that from your experience, something like that? It's good to, it's good to remember that. It means to stay with it, even when it's a little challenging, even when it seems dry, because it's not a linear process. You know, and um, that's just, just something to, to bear in mind. And so, you know, we have to work sometimes with our conditioning, sometimes with our, our experiences. Um, you know, most of us have had, you know, earlier in life challenging experiences, you know, that leave us sometimes with negative views of ourselves. You know, uh, you know I'm not okay in this way, or, you know, it could be various things. I have to be perfect in order to get love. You know, perfection. Does anyone know that one in yourself or some version of it, right? Right, and so some of this is gets uncovered on our retreats and we get to work with it. And it's something that, uh, you know, we have to, be, have to be patient with, but some of that turns up. And I'll, I'll speak in a moment. I'll speak, I'll speak uh, more about that. And so we, we learn to, we learn to uh, lead more and more with our hearts as we do the practice. And I will talk about those, those difficult states also, because that can be um, what comes up on retreats as well. And we have a basic guideline in meta-retreats, which is different from 
mindfulness retreats that generally when we're doing the metta practice and, you know, a thought comes up, we don't need to label it. We just notice it and come back. We don't do labeling in the ordinary way that we do mindfulness. We don't need to say, oh, there was this kind of thought, planning thought or whatever label. As long as we notice it pretty briefly, we just keep coming back. Don't need to do label, just stay with the metta. The exception is when things come up and they may stay for a while, you know, and they have some energy, you know, some energy, some duration, maybe, I don't know, something stays, has energy for two or three minutes, then we might switch to mindfulness practice, you know, or, you know, something comes up, maybe something happened two days ago and, you know, there's uh, irritation comes up. And we're preoccupied with the situation. It stays for a while. It lasts for a few minutes. We notice, we notice it. Then it would be the invitation would be to bring mindfulness to it. Feel what it's like in the body. Feel what it's like in the emotions. What emotions are. Stay with the irritation. Notice the thoughts. And in the usual way that we inquire into what's happening in our mindfulness practice. And then when it's no longer there, just back to the metta. So there's kind of a, a divide there where we can, uh, when something lasts for a while, we stay with it. One, one co- further comment I want to make, which is, uh, came up in, in the group earlier, is that when there are painful experiences in the body, unlike with mindfulness, we don't stay with them. That in... Metta retreats, as with concentration retreats, when something takes us away, like painful experiences in the body, we don't, uh, we don't stay with mindfulness and just be with the unpleasant sensations. So um, I think of this as a perk of a metta retreat, right? Painful experiences come up, shift your posture. You can stand up in the hall Stand up for five minutes, 10 minutes, keep your practice going. That's fine, right? And so we really stay with the metta. So that's the distinction. With, with more bodily experiences, we do generally what relieves them if they're taking our attention away from metta. With, with emotional experiences or thoughts that not, not, can't really turn the switch and say, okay, thoughts go away. In the same way that we can do that somewhat with body-based experiences, so then we stay with them. And a lot of things come up, you know, can come up. Um, this purification process, you know, if we've had, for example, um, maybe a loss in the last month or two or three or even going back a longer time, um, and we haven't processed it in this society, we often don't give enough time for, for grieving, right? And so sometimes in a retreat, sadness or grief can come up that wasn't fully processed in the past. And again, that's part of uh, what's normal. And sometimes that can be there for a while. And we honor that. You know, we let the, we let the grieving process occur. And we can... We can at times bring in the metta, at times maybe bring in uh, compassion practice. 
we can notice ourselves uh, also uh, being judgmental towards ourselves. And there are a lot of ways to work with it. Again, very common to have the, you know, that judgmental energy be present towards oneself or others. And again, if it's there and lasts for a, you know, just for 10, 15 seconds, we can just, you know, notice it, come back to the metta. If it lasts for a longer time and we're really in it, we can again bring awareness to it, stay with it, um, can sometimes, uh, again, bring in compassion practice, um, can really notice the different voices. Again, this is part of what happens in the meta retreat. We may notice those voices, uh, you know, you know, we can do meta practice and uh, find ourselves with our benefactor and, you know, saying, you know, may you be happy. And then, but we go, we go to ourselves and we notice the voice, you don't deserve love coming up. Can be, it can be quite, in, quite startling sometimes to hear those voices. But again, normal and something that really can be over time uh, worked through. I, uh, some of you know, I, I've been teaching about the last 20 years on the theme of transforming the judgmental mind. My interest in teaching it did not come out of simply thinking it was a great topic. It came out of uh, what was going on in my own being and really working kind of intensively with it for about five years. And then to some extent coming out the other end and offering, offering different tools and practices, but got to be really, really familiar with the different voices. And, and that's part of a meta retreat is seeing that because that's something that can come up. Again, if it lasts for a while, we can be with it. Uh, helpful to bring in metta practice is a beautiful antidote. When I work with people long-term with the judgmental mind, I say, very helpful to have a heart practice that you do regularly, to have a regular mindfulness practice so you can notice the judgmental mind, and then have a, a body practice so you can really notice what it's like in your body, because sometimes that's the first time we notice it. So really staying with that, if there's a lot of negativity in one's mind, something can, can be really helpful in a meta retreat is being more with beauty. Be with the trees and the, the rain, if you find that beautiful, and the, and the land, and actually take time with that. I actually, at home, I actually do metta and mudita practice with bushes and trees and flowers as a regular practice. And you can do that. It's, I find it uh, really uplifting. And to be honest, sometimes the, the trees and bushes and flowers are easier than humans. Okay, I'm, at least for me. I'm anyway, but it's not so much to go there, but to uh, uh, say that can be if you know if there's some if there's some uh, larger amount of that difficult energy, like the judgmental energy. It's really good to hang out with beauty, hang out with what really brings joy and 
a sense of uh, a sort of uplift. If the judgmental energy is there and we stay with it, you know, think of being judgmental about something that happened three days ago, irritation. Sometimes if it lasts for a while, stay with it. And particularly it can be helpful sometimes when you're in the midst of that to actually go bring the attention into the heart area. And sometimes you'll notice that the judgmental energy is driven by unacknowledged or unprocessed pain, which you sometimes can notice when you move away from the verbal level into the body. You can sometimes notice that, you know, the, the Buddhist teaching is that reactivity, particularly pushing away something, is driven by unprocessed pain. And sometimes when we touch the pain, the judgmental energy tends to dry up. An example, I'm irritated with what this person did three days ago. I'm repeating, rah, 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 why did that person do that? Sometimes I can actually go beneath the surface and feel that irritation and that anger. And maybe there's even sadness. Ah. And we touch the anger and the sadness and really feel that. And sometimes the judgmental energy dries up. It's really interesting. Yeah. A lot of... Uh, a lot of our reactivity is driven by something that's painful that we haven't fully touched. And we can explore that in our practice. And I'll, I'll close by speaking about how as we work with these challenges, we gain more glimpses of that bright sun, you know, of our being. And it manifests more. We know that more. Even, even for moments, we feel that, we feel that kindness. We feel that, uh, we feel that ease. And we well, really the invitation is to stay, stay patient. Um, the first day is the hardest day. And it's not meta, it's not linear, but generally, you know, as we stay with these challenges, things, things tend to open up and we can touch those qualities of kindness and love uh, more and more in the retreat. You know, and of course, as we train for this week, we learn how to bring out uh, the metta into the world more and more. We'll talk about that towards the, uh, towards the end of the retreat. So let me finish just with uh, <clears throat> I'll finish with two quotations. Um, one is from the great Christian contemplative Thomas Merton, who lived at the uh, Abbey of Gethsemane in uh, 
Kentucky, near, near Louisville, Kentucky. I actually um, go to that monastery uh, once a year and have a friend named Brother Paul Quinon, who is sort of the, the Merton of the current time. Merton was a great, how many of you know Thomas Merton? Some, yeah, great, a lot of people. He was a person who was one of the bridges between Christian contemplation and Buddhist contemplation or Buddhist meditation. He also was a person who may be the most significant person in the 20th century to bring the meditative dimension back to Christianity, where it had been lost for like quite a few centuries. Not lost, but not, not so available, hard to find. So this is, this is from Thomas Merton. Our job is to love others without stopping to inquire whether or not they are worthy. That is not our business, and in fact, it is nobody's business. What we're asked to do is to love, and this love itself will render both ourselves and our neighbors worthy. And then again from the Matasutta, I think tonight we're going to start, uh, we'll, we can uh, start chanting from the Matasutta. We'll, we'll be doing chants this evening. I was having an echo of my father who used to make a lot of puns. I was going to say there's a good chance we'll do chants. But I didn't say it directly. I just, okay. <laughs> okay. Anyone have a father who used to make puns? <laughs> Or still does, maybe. Okay. Um, from the Metta Sutta to close. This is our aspiration. So with a boundless heart, should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths. Whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, Free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. Whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. Let's sit quietly and let that settle for a bit. So thank you very kindly for your attention. And we have now on the schedule a little less than half an hour for walking meditation. You can use the upper walking hall. If you want to stay and sit some more in the hall, of course, feel free to do that or come in early. And we'll come back at nine for, I think we'll do a short sitting. I won't, it'll be the... Um, 
first evening discounted version. Uh, so maybe 15 minutes, something like that. So it'll be brief if you want to, because how many people are a little tired? Yeah, so I think so. If you want to come back, we'll do it briefly, but we'll, we'll end with some chanting. Okay, so that'll be at, at nine o'clock. We'll have, again, the bell ringing. So again, thank you for your, for your kind attention.